Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. Later in the pod, you'll hear Tommy's interview with CNN's Maeve Reston, who was in Oakland for Kamala Harris's campaign launch this weekend. There's also quite a bit of news to get through today from uh, Donald Trump bending the knee to Nancy Pelosi to Roger Stone's indictment to former Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz's flirtation with running for president as an independent. The cup why, runneth over with frothy, <laughs> milky news. That's why I brought my Dunkin' Donuts yeah, today. Yeah, you did. Oh, good for you. Fuck you. Um, also, uh, we're, on, we're going well, let's on. Let's cut to the chase, huh? <laughs> Where do you stand, John? Yeah, so I have a nuanced position. Uh, we're on tour. Uh, we're going on tour. Pod Save America, Love It or Leave It, and Pod Save the People are hitting the road in the f- weeks and months ahead. You can check out our tour dates and buy tickets at cricket.com slash events. And if we're coming to your town, it's best to get in on things early. So for Pod Save America... Mm. Fans in Boston, D.C., and Los Angeles especially, that means you, will be doing the Greek theater right here in L.A. towards the end of the summer, which is very cool. <coughs> Love it or leave it's going to be in New York City. So, yeah. Very exciting. Yeah. Very exciting. Um, okay. On Friday, President Trump finally agreed to end his ill-fated shutdown that he started over wall funding with no wall funding. Uh, the government will now be open for three weeks while negotiations continue over funding for border security. Trump is already warning that he's willing to shut the government down again if he doesn't get what he wants or declare a federal emergency to start building the wall on his own. Guys, why did Trump cave? What uh, what happened? Uh, because he had no hand to play. He never did. And it became clear when all the Republicans in the Senate started to cave on him. I mean, that's truly I think it's that simple. All the Republicans, there was reports of a shouting match in the Republican caucus meeting. And then six Republicans voted for the Democratic bill in the Senate to reopen the government. He had nowhere to go. Basically, uh, Mitch McConnell uh, was driving the car and Donald Trump was in a baby seat next to him playing with a little plastic wheel and honking the horn. Uh, and Mitch McConnell was like, you're driving, buddy. What did it Look sound at us. like? It, it, beep, beep. <laughs> okay. uh, and they're driving, you know, and they're driving down the street. And uh, you want to go here? You want to drive us into this ditch? OK, we'll go into the ditch. And he really let him pretend he was steering for a long time. But then finally, it was time to go to the grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I yep. mean, unpopular wall, unpopular shutdown, unpopular president doesn't add up to a very good hand, as you said. It's so funny. Like The Washington Post poll had him at 58% disapproval. Uh, in that same poll, 53% blamed Trump and congressional Republicans. And uh, in an NPR Maris poll, 57% of the country said they planned to vote against him. Those are not those are catastrophic numbers, right? Yeah. I, I don't think that the press sort of appropriately contextualizes what that means for a president seeking reelection. That is a catastrophic defeat. Of course, he had to cave. Of course. Yeah, I mean, the lowest approval ratings that President Obama saw were like in the in the like mid to low 40s during the debt ceiling crisis, at which time the Republicans also had, you know, uh, ratings in the tank, too. Mm-hmm. And that was like for three weeks. Trump is ba- <laughs> Donald Trump has basically been stuck in the low 40s. He's been mm-hmm. stuck been f- since he's become president. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then the shutdown and every once in a while he dips into the high 30s. And this is basically what happened in the shutdown. Yeah. And he also started losing some of the Republican base, which never usually happens. And I think the other thing they faced was Democrats were completely unified. uh, And Trump got this. He was complaining in a meeting. Why are they so loyal about (laughs) Democrats, which is so funny. And look, there was a lot of people that started protesting, uh, the air traffic controllers. There were unions that protested. So I think that the reason that some of these Senate Republicans started to cave and started to get worried was, you know, they had federal workers in their states, not just Democrats, not just liberals, who started protesting and telling them that, like, they were sick of fucking not getting paid. Um, so 
I just in, in terms of where the White House went wrong, <laughs> I just want to. Uh, How much time? You great got? question, John. Read a Washington Post headline from last week. Quote, master negotiator or non-entity, Kushner thrusts himself into middle of shutdown talks. And this is from today's Washington Post. Trump cast about for blame and pointed fingers at his staff, including Kushner, for failing to resolve the impasse, according to aides. Mm. Guys, what happened to the master negotiator, Jared Kushner? It's uh, From Middle East peace to government shutdowns. It's really amazing. It's a good lesson. Uh, never hire someone you can't fire. Uh, yeah, you just. Right. You know, he likes, I mean, he's fresh off criminal justice reform passing. He thinks now he's a genius, even though, you know, most of the coalition for that bill was set up by other people, other senators, other politicians, other activists for years. Oh, by the way, it was, forget, like, it almost, the only reason it didn't pass before Donald Trump was president is because Jeff Sessions stopped it. Right. Like, there's, (laughs) there was a coalition for this long before Jared Kushner came along. Yeah. I mean, the only quote you really need to remember about Jared Kushner is from Donald Trump when he said, apparently, Jared has become an expert on immigration in the last 48 hours. He said that to a big Oval Office meeting. And, like, I think listeners to this show or followers of me on Twitter know that I, don't like Jared. I think he's annoying. I think he sucks at his job. But, you know, it's fun to remind him that he sucks because he's such a little pud who, like, fell upward through everything <laughs> in life. But it is also a reminder that having a dilettante uh, who has never done anything in life doing life-or-death negotiations over government funding or pretending he understands Middle East peace is a dangerous thing to do. Like, you have an idiot who's completely miscalculating. And this wasn't the first time. I mean... Javanka has never been a moderating force. They've been just morons bungling their way through the administration. Like Jared thought firing Flynn would end the Russia probe. We learned that from Chris Christie over the weekend. He thought that Democrats would be uh, happy when Trump fired Comey. That didn't turn out very well. He thought it was a good idea to march into the Moscow embassy and establish a back channel with his buddies in in Russia. So like, he's an idiot. (laughs) He's an idiot. Jared and Ivanka's politics are the type of politics that probably Howard Schultz has in mind <laughs> as he's running for president. <laughs> well, like, you wonder what the basis for, like, moderate social liberalism when it's convenient and then <laughs> fiscal conservatism. That's like New York dilettantes uh, Jared well, Kushner and look, Ivanka Trump. They don't have politics. They don't. They, Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump do not have a coherent political ideology. They are, you know, they are like... The characters in The Great Gatsby, sort of, you know, bumbling through their existence, uh, making mistakes, not caring who they hurt, not caring about any of it. Um, The only, you know, their their source of feedback is, I assume, cocktail parties, each other, friends, um, and advisors who will never tell them the truth. So, you know, these are just two wealthy children who have never faced a challenge. Yeah, John Kelly was right. They're, they've been playing government all along. And, and, and John mentioned before, like the fact that he thinks that it's success with criminal justice reform, which is something Democrats want, means you can get them to agree to wall funding is crazy. Like he sincerely thinks that there's this grand bargain on the table. Meanwhile, the White House is setting up meetings with Trump and Ginny Thomas, Clarence Thomas's wife, where they scream at him for a while for not being mean enough to immigrants or transgender people or hiring enough of their cronies. Like, I like that meeting. They're, they're setting themselves up for a f- disaster over it's and over. All, it's also crazy. Like one of these pieces, it was either the Post or the Times, said, you know, uh, in meetings, Jared was holding up Stephen Miller as, oh, he's much softer than his reputation. You know, he's a, he's a really thoughtful guy in immigration. Stephen Miller, who, you know, in Cliff Sims' new book, former White House aide, this out, said at one point, Miller said, I don't care if another refugee ever steps in, steps foot into the United it's States. It's like, it's <laughs> so funny. It's like, uh, Stephen Miller is actually a kinder, more decent person. Once you get to know him, Stephen Miller looks up from a deer's carcass, his face covered in blood. What? 
Was my was my name mentioned? <laughs> their misunderstanding of, awful. Their misunderstanding of Nancy Pelosi is just so absolute and fundamental that I I don't know I don't know how it's possible. Like they thought that Pelosi was going to have a hard time on her left for not paying for a wall. I that get, is that is bonkers. I mean I I get him trying to mess around with Joe Manchin, but like again he called Joe Manchin and was like keep an eye on the speech tonight it's going to change everything in terms of the political dynamic and then it was a gigantic flop so i don't know man this, the emperor is no closer I, I, kid i get why it's possible it's because they are stuck in this you know fox news right-wing media um bubble where like they think that you know democrats are going to cave and that democrats are going to want wall funding they're going to bring people to their side like they just they don't hear any other opinions <laughs> you know yeah, like they don't expose also, um, themselves to other news well like what do you do what do you do when when at the center of everything that you've built your life around is an unsolvable problem this immovable huge mistake at the center of all of it you you know, play around the margins and try to pretend it's not happening. You fill your days with meetings and conversations somewhat loosely tied to reality while all the while the central problem doesn't go away. Like all these people are playing White House, pretending. I mean, there's a reason every time they give a big speech, they gather around the Oval Office desk and take a photo like tourists. There's a reason. And the reason is deep down, they all know they have no business being there, that it's not actually real, that it will always have an asterisk. And so, but what do you do in that circumstance? They have to get out of bed. They have to check their emails. They have to respond to those emails. And so on and on it goes until we can get them (laughs) the fuck out of there. Every day could be your last day. Of all the politically damaging things Trump has done to himself and the Republican Party, which has already, as we said, made him a uniquely unpopular president. Where does the shutdown rank? How, how bad is this? I think we don't know, but I think it's very bad. I think it is very bad. The longest partial shutdown in history, the pointlessness of it, the cruelty of it, the damage of it, people will remember. It will, his base clearly has left a mark. Um, we're, you know, this is the beginning of the 2020 campaign. This is, you know, we have, we have, Democratic candidates giving big speeches, and this is the president's kickoff. Yeah, the president's kickoff to his 2020 reelection was caving to Nancy Pelosi after shutting down the government for no reason for five weeks. Every political problem can be fixed, you know, especially if there's an exit event. But I mean, he has a 63 percent disapproval rating with independent voters. That is really bad. And the solution that he's found to the problem with independent voters is creating a, a similar problem on the far, far right with the Ann Coulters and, and worse of the world, who now are going to call him a wimp and a loser for not getting wall funding until the day he dies. So he's he's stuck in this political place where I guess he's going to fight for wall funding forever, despite the clear political dynamic that it doesn't help him. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I want to talk about that. I mean, also... The CBO, uh, the Congressional Budget Office, nonpartisan, uh, they came out this morning, said the shutdown cost the economy $11 billion, $3 billion, which is a permanent loss. Uh, They project that growth will slow to 2.3% from 3.1%. And in 2020, uh, they're projecting that growth will decline to 1.7%. That's when the president is running for re-election. So, and I think like you said, Tommy, it's this, the shutdown... It pissed off workers. It pissed off liberals. It pissed off moderates and and independents who think like government is always broken and doesn't work and is dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. It pissed off his base for once because he didn't actually get the wall. Ann Coulter tweeted on Friday, good news for George Herbert Walker Bush. As of today, he is no longer the biggest wimp ever to serve as president of the United States. Uh, on Bill Maher, she said, you know, I expected the president to keep his promise. I wonder how widespread that is among the base. Yeah, I think that's, I think it's, Interesting. I think we'll see. I think I think one question is over the next year, is it possible for Donald Trump's numbers to get below 
the high 30s or low 40s and start dipping into that, you know, into the 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 swampy cold waters of George W. Bush's lowest approval ratings. Yeah, like it's obviously where he belongs, but will he get there? I think that depends on losing some of his own people. Um, and I also think, you know, this fight is important and will last. Uh, but in part, that depends on what happens next. You know, one of the reasons Donald Trump ended up in this mess is he he tried to behave the same way he would have behaved if Democrats didn't control a branch of the government. Mm. He kind of did his blustery thing exactly. and tried to get something through. Now, he had he couldn't do that during the first two years of total Republican control. control. But he used the exact same tactic, went harder at it, and it left him worse off. And so I think the big question is, will there be any kind of adjustment in how they try to negotiate with Congress on this next funding bill and the, and the other funding bills to come? Because I think that will determine the lasting impact of this shutdown and this kind of governing is what happens now he's already said he's he's basically issued the exact same threat we're heading into the exact same conversation how is this going to look different yeah i mean that's you know mulvaney's on tv saying he's going to do the wall with or without congress Mm -hmm. um for some reason there's reporting saying that trump thinks he can still get wall money from democrats uh what do we think is more likely another shutdown on february 15th uh trump declaring a national emergency and getting and trying to get his money that way or some kind of a deal. I mean, I think predicting what Trump will do is, is I can't do it because he's irrational. But, I, you know, it is clear that he is reeling from the criticism. He is not used to being savaged on Fox News from right wing creeps like Ann Coulter, uh, et cetera. So they're they have to continue to posture and say that he might shut it down again because that's the only leverage they think they have. I can't imagine any scenario where Mitch McConnell would let that happen yeah, to his, that's his members. I so I think that leaves you a national emergency. Now, when you get to a national emergency, Marco Rubio says it's a bad precedent. Senator Roy Blunt from Missouri said he opposed it on Fox News Sunday. Uh, gigantic jackass Lindsey Graham is now for it. But I assume he's for it as a way to just get past the government shutdown talk. So that seems like the path to me. But again, it's not a success. You just get bogged down in litigation. And remember, there's... Basically, two big reasons uh, for Trump's base and Republicans to be opposed to a national emergency declaration. Number one is, um, what if a Democrat does that in the future? You know, mm-hmm. national emergency because of climate change, Green New right. Deal. I'm going to spend all this money. But number two is, it just might not work and actually b- get the wall built because immediately there's going to be um, a lawsuit against it. Someone's going to file, and it's going to be held up in court, much like Trump, uh, Trump's promise to. And the DACA program and deport all the dreamers, right, which is uh, had been held up in court and, and litigation ever since he made the announcement. And basically the same thing could probably and, and may probably happen if he uh, does a national emergency around the wall. You know? Right. I mean, but it's made, like I said, we've said this before. It's tailor made for Trump, right, where he gets to have a big announcement on February 15th, national emergency, the base cheers again. And yeah. then everyone forgets in three months from now that the wall hasn't yeah. been built at all. It's, it's, aut- it's yeah. autocrat in the streets, uh, <laughs> failed uh, Republican in the in the sheets. But the, um, <laughs> well, that that is what that is his go to. Someone needs to go back through all of our pods and find uh, out all of your iterations in the of that. In the streets, <laughs> things that you've made. But, but the other thing, the thing is also like you know we're we're. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to for, it's easy to forget that America has actual problems <laughs> outside of trying to get through these like very small debates. I mean, we're, you know, is a deal possible? Yes. There have been several immigration deals on the table for 2 years. It's mm-hmm. actually Donald Trump who has walked away from the ones that were palatable to Democrats. So I think another question would be also, all right, if a deal is on the table, if we are going to talk about border security funding, which Democrats are going to be open to, they always are, uh, what are we going to get? 
Right. What are we going to ask for? Are we going to actually try to use our our newfound leverage and power to try to get through something for the dreamers? Or what are what are we going to get in exchange for this border wall funding? Because and the answer is nothing. Right. Because and, Trump told the Wall Street Journal over the exactly. weekend, um, I I don't want to deal with dreamers. We should take care of that and separately. Yeah. Well, so like I don't know. He what won't, he, but, but like we won't again, accept less than five point seven billion, and and he won't trade wall funding for a broader immigration reform. So right. what the fuck are we talking <laughs> about? So, but weeks. so but but right. But then it, then it turns back to Democrats and say, all right. Mitch McConnell cannot allow another shutdown. Like, what are we willing to fight for? What are we willing to push for? That's all. I mean, yeah. So another question, is it time to end the possibility of shutdowns for good? Some members of Congress are angry enough about the damage of recent shutdowns that they're pushing measures to keep them from ever happening again. The list of sponsors for a bill backed by Rob Portman, Republican from Ohio, is growing. Mark Warner from Virginia is offering a a proposal called the as Tommy talked about last week, the Stop <laughs> Shutdowns it. Transferring Say Unnecessary it. Pain and Inflicting Damage in the Coming Year Act, which What's is also known as the Stop Stupidity Act. Nailed it. Boom, roasted. Great. Nancy Pelosi Nancy. has also said in the past few days that she might push a bill on the House side soon. What do we think about this? <laughs> Nancy's act is called I'll Kill Your Family if you shut down the government <laughs> act of, of uh, 2019. Get the guns out the mantle. No, you know, I agree. No more debt ceiling. No, no more... Uh, fund our priorities or we'll shut down the government it's completely unnecessary if you if you don't believe your proposals are popular enough or reasonable enough to get through a normal course of debate over how to fund the government then using the government as leverage using the government itself as leverage uh, does not make that more appealing yeah this is not how the system was designed the no. founders were not sitting around thinking let's hold each other hostage all the time and and like the economic data you mentioned some of what we lost will never get back. We will lose points in GDP. But that's also true for like the gathering of scientific data about climate change, for example. Like you will you you never have a chance to get back data that you could only gather that day. Like there's real problems here. Yeah. I will say like I, I was looking into this and there's one note of caution on this. So basically the way this bill would work is um you know, if you couldn't reach an agreement, it would automatically fund everything at the prior year's levels. And then to spur a resolution, funding would be reduced by 1% after 120 days if no agreement is reached and by 1% more every 90 days. Um, so that's bad. The, the, yeah, the, the chief uh, economist on the budget committee who works for Bernie Sanders uh, wrote a blog post this morning that said it's, it's actually very bad for Democrats because as you continue to fund everything at last year's levels, it basically means cuts because you don't keep up with yeah. population growth. And so for democratic priorities, for food stamps, for education funding, for all this stuff, they just keep getting cut and cut and cut every year. Cuts. It's worth remembering too that we <laughs> we played a game like this in the past where we set this deadline to negotiate in good faith uh, under the Obama administration. And if we fail to hit that deadline, sequester. the sequester would kick in and there'd be drastic cuts to both defense and to uh, the uh, um, domestic, discre- d- domestic discretionary spending uh, outside of the defense. That was sort of the both sides had something to lose. Democrats were, inter- you know, Republicans don't want to see defense cuts. Democrats don't want to see domestic cuts. And guess what? We blew through that fucking deadline like a, like an Arizona wildcat. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> struggling, struggling to get ready for vinyls. <laughs> I don't know that they do that there. Just kidding, Arizona. I, I honestly only know Wildcat from the movie Speed. I was searching for a school. It is nothing personal. I love it. <laughs> Speed comes to mind. Shut up, Doesn't Rob. Doesn't he say Rob that? Cat? Does he say, like, does he say, hey there, Wildcat? It's he a, does, it's a part, it's say spoiler that. for the film Speed. Uh, I, I agree with you. <laughs> there was a camera on the bus. The, the uh, draconian bill <laughs> to prevent government shutdowns can't deliver by default Republicans something that they want, <laughs> yeah, which right. is less spending. It has to actually be indexed to either inflation or population growth or something. That's how, about, how you make them. How about it goes up by 20% every year? Yeah. <laughs> I like Eat it. Eat that, cool. huh? Cool, cool, cool. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about 
Who framed Roger Stone? Uh, on Friday, federal agents arrested Stone at his Florida home for seven criminal counts, including obstruction, making false statements, witness tampering. Most of the charges had to do with Stone lying or covering up or threatening others to lie and cover up uh, his contacts with WikiLeaks about the emails and documents that Russian government stole from Hillary Clinton and the Democrats. Guys, what's new in this indictment that we didn't know before? <laughs> so uh, we'll get we'll get to that. I just want to talk about two sort of bigger picture things that I, I feel like are, are getting lost a little bit. One, Roger Stone is not some fringe weirdo. Mm. He is Donald Trump's closest aide. He's probably his long. He's certainly his longest serving aide. So. I think that people dismiss him as sort of a clown or a buffoon who's on the fringe of politics. Like, he's the guy who is the architect of, of Trumpism. And I think, once again, the Stone saga raises for me the question of why lie about these things? If there was no cr- there's not necessarily a crime in contacting WikiLeaks if you think it's a news gathering organization. So, why say that some guy named Randy Credico was your connection to WikiLeaks instead of Jerome Corsi? Why create a crime and lie to Congress? Uh, when there wasn't one that we know of. And the only answer I can come up with is that there's something they're trying to hide in the same way General Flynn was trying to hide something about his totally, actually kind of boring contacts with the Russian government or well, KT McFarland. Like, all of them are lying about this issue over and over and over again. I mean, there's a clue in the indictment, right? And this, to me, is the most interesting piece of it, where it says uh, someone inside the Trump campaign was, it was, was directed to reach out to Roger Stone to find out more about yeah. what WikiLeaks is going to do. A senior Trump campaign official was directed to contact Stone about information WikiLeaks might have had on Hillary Clinton. The date on that is, of course, in July of 2016. So um, who the senior Trump campaign official is, we do not know. Some speculation that it could be Rick Gates because he's a cooperating witness at this point. So then you, your question would be, who would direct, who had the power to direct Rick Gates, who was like deputy campaign manager? Mm-hmm. Well, Possibly Paul Manafort, who was campaign manager at the time, though, since they've already charged Manafort, why wouldn't you name him or or call him individual one or something like that? And if it's not Manafort, then it's Donald Trump, Donald Trump Jr., Javanka, someone like that. This is a good example of not just the passive voice, but the passive aggressive voice. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Very, Um, very true. No, but I think this, this indictment tells us for sure that the campaign wanted to know how WikiLeaks releases could damage Hillary Clinton. For sure. Um, And of course, we already know that they wanted dirt from the Russian government on the Clinton campaign because they all took that meeting in early June. This is now the campaign asking Stone, okay, we know that WikiLeaks is going to put out dirt that the Russian government stole. They knew that at the time because it was publicized at that time that Russia hacked the DNC. So they knew that a foreign government was trying to launder stolen material to hurt their opponent through WikiLeaks, and they were asking Roger Stone, go find out where it is, when it's coming, and all that kind of stuff. And Roger was flailing to make it happen. I mean, he emailed Jerome Corsi and told him to get to Assange. He emailed a guy named uh, Ted Malik who tried to get him to go see Assange. I mean, they were... This wasn't something he undertook lightly. He didn't just fire off an email to, like, info at wikileaks.org. Like, he made a real good faith effort. And later he told Sam Nunberg, his former aide and a guy he sort of raised politically. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Mentored. Mentor. He mentored. Uh, that he had dinner with Julian Assange. And he later said that was a joke because that's a thing we always joke about. I just make up dinners when I email you guys. I pretended I had dinner with somebody. So it's like a weird concerted effort to get to these people. Yeah. And so I think, you know, Stone said over the weekend that, quote, this indictment is thin as piss on a rock Hmm. and that his text messages have been mischaracterized. (laughs) Uh, That one's really great. That one's really great because they are so hard to mischaracterize yeah. they are so explicit and direct i mean the dog you know chris Christie himself said it to george stephanopoulos this weekend 
you know, uh, they've got all these emails and text messages that he create, created that tell a pretty clear story. And I think it's going to be very difficult for a jury to listen to that and conclude that it wasn't what he was trying to do. And it's worth remembering that before Chris Christie was a famous political oaf, he was a, a prosecutor. Yes. But, uh, <laughs> a pretty yeah, accomplished right. one. <laughs> yeah. And he thinks that the indictment actually is very, very damning. I want to go back to Tommy's first question, though, which is why all the lying? Right. Because I, I, I only I think there's only two explanations. One, they are trying to cover up something worse or two. They are just so stupid that they wanted to lie because exposing that there was some contact with Russians would be politically devastating to Trump, right? And so they were so stupid, they figured, why not lie? Mm -hmm. Because the political fallout of this could be really bad for the president. We want to protect him, even though it's not illegal. I mean, I'm just I'm just throwing that out there as the other possibility. Sure. Like, I, I don't think that's right, but I guess that could be it, too. I buy that. I buy that for some of the other dum-dums, but Roger Stone has a Nixon tattoo on his back. <laughs> Right. You know, he is familiar with what happens when you lie during the course of an investigation right. like this. Yeah. I mean, just to break it down. Right. There's two reasons somebody would try to lie in this way. One would be to protect themselves or, you know, protect themselves and their loved ones. The other would be to protect Donald Trump. And I think it's still an open question for yeah. some of these indictments as to whether or not these were people purely lying to protect themselves and their involvement in crimes or were they lying to protect Donald Trump, either his reputation or the fact that he was involved himself? Yeah, I mean, it, just some of the text messages too. <laughs> this is this is them. this is what Stone texted uh, Credico uh, to lie. Quote: Stone Wallet, plead the fifth. Anything to save the plan. <laughs> In other exchanges, according to the indictment, Stone told Person Two that Person Two should do a Frank Pentangeli before HPSI for the House uh, Intelligence Committee in order to avoid contradicting Stone's testimony, a reference to a character in The Godfather Part Two who would plan to testify, testify against the Corleone family, but was pressured to deny any recollection of key events. Anything to save the plan is sort of a flashing red light there. I mean, what an idiot. What's I, the plan? I don't know, but man, do these people love using their fingers to type incriminating things on permanent records um, over and over again. So I think the other big question here, Mueller has already charged the Russian hackers and Russian intelligence with a conspiracy to defraud the United States. The question now is, what are the possible reasons that Mueller hasn't charged Stone, Manafort, you know, uh, Flynn, any of these folks, any of the Trump folks, as part of that conspiracy? Is he waiting, or is this all we're going to get? It's That's a really interesting Obviously, question. Obviously, we don't know, but there's sort of mm -hmm. evidence on both sides. Yeah, that... we don't know. I mean, one of the things I think that should make us all a bit um, uh, uh, cautious is the fact that the last thing, like Rudy Giuliani and his sort of adult appearances, he kind of comes back to something, which is like, what's the crime? Conspiracy to hack? And, and, it's, a, and it's a very specific turn of phrase because the Russians, they were hacking Republicans, they were hacking Democrats, they were hacking people for a long time. A lot of the things they released, they had for some time. Mm -hmm. And so- you know, if the Russians already had it, it's not like Roger Stone conspired to hack anybody, conspired to steal anything. He was just aware of something participating in the release of that information. And that is an important distinction. Then again, as we also know, Donald Trump went on television and said, can you please do me a favor and get her emails? And they tried getting those emails that very night. So there's sort of... and even, But even yeah. that's not necessarily a crime. No, no, that's not... But it is if somebody participated, now, right. if someone's aware of it and participating in the ongoing stealing and hacking of democrats yeah i thought the new york times laid this out really well there's a there was a piece over the weekend like what's a crime what's not a crime mm -hmm. they basically said you know if if trump campaign officials coordinated with assange 
uh, on the timing and content of the document releases in an effort to maximize the damage of the Clinton campaign, that might qualify. But so far, Mueller has offered no evidence of that. So it's like Trump was, if Trump and the campaign were aware that the documents were going to be dumped, even if they asked, like, when is it going to happen? We're just sort of interested. But that's not necessarily a crime. But if they actually said, like, oh, if you do it here, this yep. might help. And and there is some evidence that it was getting close to it when they were like, when Stone was basically saying, like, oh, the campaign should start talking about how sick Hillary Clinton and Bill right. Clinton are because that's going to be a subject of the of the dump. Jerome know? Corsi, uh, who is a birther, scumbag, right-wing journalist, I guess, in the loosest sense of the word, emailed Stone saying he knew of Assange's plans and that he had two more document dumps, basically. And he said, would not hurt to start suggesting that Hillary's old or memory's bad, that yeah. she's had a stroke, which is this sort of weird focus on medical issues, which they kind of did later do, especially after she fainted at, at the 9-11 event. Yeah. But, um, you know, that sort of language and that interaction does speak to coordination. Yeah. And so, you know, why hasn't Mueller charged it yet? Um, Mimi Rocco, who's a former SDNY, uh, she said there's three possible reasons. Um, one, uh, Mueller wants to charge everyone at once and he's not ready yet. Two, um, charging Stone with that would trigger discovery on the evidence around the conspiracy, and maybe he doesn't want that evidence public yet, mm-hmm. and he doesn't want the other side to see that yet because uh, they could be indicted themselves. And also, you know, pointed out that uh, two search warrants were executed when they indicted Stone, both of his house and his apartment in Manhattan. And so Mueller wants to get more evidence first, right? Or the other one is, and some people are raising this, that Mueller just you know, to prove a conspiracy, you need to prove a conspiracy beyond a reasonable doubt. And Mueller's cautious and he wants to prove the crimes that he can prove, which are all these cover-up crimes. And he doesn't yet have the evidence and may not have the evidence to prove a conspiracy against the United States beyond a reasonable doubt for these Trump people. Right. And I think that you know, we should just look at what that is, right? Let's take, let's call that the worst case scenario. What we were describing then is a, <laughs> a um, embarrassing, morally reprehensible, uh, vaguely but unprovably illegal effort to subvert American democracy so embarrassing and wrong wrong and humiliating that a group of people then spent the next year of their lives lying and obstructing justice and committing crimes to cover it up. Still not great. No. Exactly. <laughs> very, very bad. Still not great. Yeah. It, it, it should be enough. So, yes. I mean, it should be enough. We don't know much, but one person who knows a hell of a lot more than we do is John Brennan, who's oh, a CIA yeah. director and who now now tweets like he is uh, crossing the uh, Delaware, Matterston or Jefferson. <laughs> uh, so he he wrote, he said on one of the shows that I expect there would be a significant number of indictments and a significant number of names that will be familiar to you all. He thinks that the shoes that are yet to drop are going to be the ones that are going to be the most profound and that it will hit people at the top of the organization. So I don't know what John knows. John doesn't know anything in terms of classified information since he left the United States government. But and Trump took his clearance away to be a dick. That's right. That's right. Quite a statement from Brennan, though. I saw yeah. that it was just like a headline in the Hill, and I'm like, yeah. okay, we're, 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 we're names so that will be accustomed to names st- that will be familiar to most Americans. We are we are accustomed to statements like this from people like James Clapper and people like John Brennan because they have felt the need to talk this way since Donald Trump became president. But these are people who who take so seriously not getting ahead of the facts who take so seriously being circumspect circumspect and not doing anything to uh, go beyond what they could reasonably conclude. That is like what that is what they try to do. Yeah. But even I will go back to Lovett's point just before we move on. Like even if Brennan is wrong, like I I do worry that if Mueller ends this whole investigation with a whole bunch of uh, crimes about uh, covering up lies and obstruction, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. 
that the but but nothing else on conspiracy that's connected to actual Trump campaign officials or administration officials, then the press is going to be all like, you know, Donald Trump's going to declare victory, no collusion. The right wing's going to say that. The conservative media is going to do that. And the mainstream press is going to be like, yeah, I know it was all just a bunch of process crimes. It's like we have laid out here yeah. that the that the, the <laughs> Trump campaign knew there was a conspiracy on behalf of the Russian government to interfere with our election to elect them president and not only agreed to like wanted that to happen and sought it out but then like agreed to participate let it happen these are the same republicans who impeached bill clinton for the same set of process crimes and the underlying cover-up the thing bill clinton was trying to cover up was not an international conspiracy to fundamentally corrupt american democracy it was a gross abuse of power and a fucking blowjob like the, the, we've been through this before several times. These are important and uh, crimes that we need to take seriously. Everyone believes that. I just Paul Manafort forwarded internal polling data to a Russian <laughs> intel guy. I mean, like Donald Trump was begging WikiLeaks to help. I, I, I think that right. the evidentiary case is going to be there for something more nefarious than what we currently know. Certainly, the political case is there for a, a human being leading our country who is shockingly unfit on uncountable number of levels to lead the country. He stood (laughs) next to Vladimir Putin in front of the world and took his side over the American intelligence community on whether or not he interfered in our election. That's all, that's basically, forget about anything else that Mueller finds. That's all you need to know. Look, Mueller is, he's got a big chunk of marble and like Michelangelo, he doesn't carve it from the out in, he carves a perfect hand and then he carves a perfect foot. (laughs) Then he carves a perfect arm, you know? Yep. And when will we see this whole statue in beautiful marble? It'll be gorgeous. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go, and Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com and enjoy your edible. <laughs> Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Reclaim your time now that you can listen to four weekly ads-free episodes across Pod Save America and Pod Save the World 
There's never been a better time to join Cricket's Friend of the Pod subscription community. The marketing people say that listening ads free saves you up to two hours of ad listening each month. Imagine the possibilities. You know what you can do with two extra hours a week? You can listen, listen to, two, to more podcasts. Exactly. Ah, two more episodes. Yeah. That's two more episodes. Yeah. Get more stuff in your brain. Yeah. Get more stuff in that more brain. More stuff and content in there like, yeah, uh, like you're a foie gras goose. Dog. <laughs> Become a member today. Go to cricket.com slash friends now to learn more. All right. Let's talk about 2020. The New York Times published a piece this weekend about how Trump's team is getting nervous about a potential primary fight. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, especially after the shutdown dragged down his poll numbers, even among Republicans. According to the piece, quote, Mr. Trump, according to close associates, appears without a plan for mounting a strong campaign in 2020 or for persuading the majority of Americans who view him negatively to give him another chance. The article mentions potential Republican opponents like Maryland <coughs> Governor Larry Hogan, former Ohio Governor John Kasich. Former Arizona Senator Jeff Flake, a loud fart noise. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, guys, if you were political consultants, would you advise one of these candidates to challenge Donald Trump? Yes, run. All of you, please, all of you, run and primary him and attack him and and try not to suck at it this bad this time. That said, I think this is going to get maybe built up into. Uh, a possible hurdle for Donald Trump that doesn't really exist if you look at the way primaries work and the the hold he has on his base, and that therefore it will ultimately be spoken of as a win somehow that he didn't get primaried as a sitting president of the United States, uh, which should be a matter of course. So uh, I don't know. There's no appetite for Jeff Flake. There's no appetite for John Kasich really. But maybe if they go out and they really hammer him day after day after day, it will harm him. Yeah, politically. I think we don't know. I, you know, Tim Miller wrote a great piece about this and why he thought it was important. And I thought the argument he made is the right one, which is Tommy's right. Politically, it's a long shot. But so is Donald Trump becoming president. And the real case to be made for an alternative to Donald Trump and the Republican Party is a moral one. That all these people that have claimed over the years that this is not who should represent Republicanism and who have failed to stand up for it enough, if they claim that there should be an alternative, well, someone has to fucking be it. Yeah, right. And if someone doesn't stand up and be it, if someone... It, if the Republican Party was a healthy political party, if it was a healthy political movement, we wouldn't be having this conversation. There would be multiple conservatives standing up and saying, why not me? I should do it. I want to do it. The question would not be, is anyone going to be uh, tough enough to stand up to Donald Trump? The question would be, are there going to be too many, too many people willing to try to fight against this guy who obviously is morally and, 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 and uh, personally unfit to be president? Yeah. Uh, but that's not happening. And so, if these, so, so they are in the situation where their movement has failed. Uh, the base has been enamored of Donald Trump by right-wing propaganda. And the question is, is someone, despite all those headwinds, willing to do the right thing? And I think so far we don't know. Yeah, and look, Tim's point is, because he wants to save that version of the Republican Party, that even if it's a long shot and this person might lose, they should try anyway because it's the morally right thing to do, right? So that that's good. But I actually think the most effective primary to Donald Trump would come from his base from the right. I think like Ann Coulter running for president <laughs> against Donald or Tucker, Trump or Tucker or Tucker, right? And saying, you promised all these things. You promised a wall. You promised this, you promised that. And you didn't deliver for the base. That's actually far more dangerous to him, I think, than some Republican, mm -hmm. mainstream Republican or some Republican moderate. And look, historically, challenges from the base of your own party um, are more dangerous than a challenge from you know, a more centrist part of the, of the yeah. party. Yeah, I mean, Jimmy, I Jimmy Carter was sweating Ted Kennedy a lot more yes, than he was exactly. some fucking Pete's Coffee CEO or whatever <laughs> the hell the alternative. I mean, look, I, I don't mean to be dismissive of these efforts. I don't think they're going to be effective in any way for exactly the, the dynamic you talked about, which is 
he has a hold on 30% of the country that is absolute mm-hmm. at this point, and uh, that's going to make it really hard to win a primary against him. But they should attack him. But they should go into this full speed. Don't go in with some high road message about how you're going to unite the country, blah, blah, blah. Your goal here is to damage him politically so that he is not the next president. Yeah. Just be eyes wide open. And, about that. and also to understand that this dynamic that John's pointing out is absolutely right, which is the base wants someone even more to the right than Donald Trump. That problem uh, will not be solved in this election. But if someone does give voice to that version of republicanism, it will be there as, as an example after this kind of republicanism uh, uh, gets the comeuppance it deserves. And once, you know, it will take wide scale Republican defeat to force the reckoning the Republican Party needs. That's what we said before the 2016 election. That's what we said since. That reckoning will not be brought about by a primary challenge, but it will offer an example for when that reckoning comes. So we talked a lot about uh, Donald Trump's challenges as a candidate. Um, let's talk about his strengths. What strengths does Donald Trump bring to the 2020 race? Well, according to some of the MAGA dead enders, he is playing chess. And the rest <laughs> of us are just playing checkers. So he is a master, He's a master genius political strength. I mean, his honestly, his real strengths are that he continues to dominate the news cycle all day, every day. That's, no, that's and a, I have that as a big one. Yeah, and, command and, media attention. Well, and like even even the dynamic that just occurred in the in the wall shutdown fight, like it, the press ended up trying to meet in the middle of the debate, despite the fact that he was like, "I will gladly own the shutdown," despite the fact that it, it was clear that he was trying to extract a unilateral concession from Democrats uh, while offering nothing. He it was treated as a both sides issue. So. The, the frustrating dynamic that we've all screamed about for two years, four years, is still there. Yeah. Yeah, I would just add, you know, we still live in this crazy political environment, media environment, where there's the standard we're all held to, and then there's the standard Trump is held to. And that continues to be true, and that continues to be an advantage for him. You know, he is rewarded for, you know, not throwing up on himself, Yeah. where other politicians would have to say, produce a cogent argument. I think the other strength he brings is he's going to have a fuckload of money. Yeah. He's going to raise a lot of money. He's going to have all the Republican super PACs behind him throwing in a lot of money, too. And he is very good at demonizing opponents. He's yeah. not very good at um, coming up with a positive message for himself, no. but he is very good at demonizing whoever runs against him. And he will use that money to try to destroy the Democratic candidate in every way possible and make that candidate unacceptable to the American people. He is not trying to win. He is merely trying to make sure that the Democrat loses. And that's what he did in 2016, and he's going to try that again. And and, and one other thing that could help Trump, a third-party challenger. Um, On Sunday, former Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz let the world know that he seriously considered running for president as an independent candidate in 2020. He said in a 60 Minutes interview, we're living at a most fragile time. Not only the fact that this president is not qualified to be the president, but the fact that both parties are consistently not doing what's necessary on behalf of the American people. Blah, 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 blah. According to the news report, Schultz has hired a number of people already to advise him on this potential project, including Steve Schmidt, John McCain's campaign manager in 2008. Um... As noted in a recent piece by the Washington Post, Schultz has signaled a willingness to break with democratic orthodoxy. We have to go after entitlements, he said in the CNBC interview uh, after announcing his retirement last year. He also dismissed as false promises the proposals for single-payer health care, guaranteed federal jobs that have become popular on the left, saying they were fiscally unworkable. Guys, how much should a Schultz candidacy scare the shit out of us? I'm not really there yet. I'm still in the place of... He has not said he's going to run as an independent. I think it's all of our jobs to make sure that he doesn't actually make that decision. 
Um, it's extremely foolish and dangerous and selfish and narcissistic uh, and not evidence-based. Um, I'm, there's a piece about to, <clears throat> when you hear this is up on Cricket.com where I sort of walk through what I was thinking about it because it made me so angry. I had to write an article, all right, which is not something I like to do. <laughs> Tommy, what do you think about the Schultz thing? Uh, I mean, it, hopefully it'll turn out to be nothing. If he wants to run as a Democrat, welcome. Yes. Let's go for it. Have at it. But running as a third party, uh, there are just reams and reams and reams of data that show he is more likely to peel off anti-incumbent voters, uh, disaffected Republican voters, and the sort of middle ground that we need to beat Trump. And to do that at a time when Trump's disapproval is at a historic high and we have the best possible chance of sending his ass back to New York is unconscionable. It is immoral. It is disgraceful, arrogant, stupid thing to do because you were able to peddle expensive lattes for decades and think that you are somehow the businessman savior that we've all heard about for decades and we got with Donald Trump and that hasn't turned out too well. Yeah. I mean, look, it's it's very hard to predict what's going to happen with a specific set of candidates in a race. But, you know, we do have some evidence. Howard Wolfson, who's advising Michael Bloomberg, another billionaire who's thought about running for president in the past, tweeted last night, you know, I have seen enough data over many years to know that anyone running for POTUS as an independent will split the anti-incumbent, anti-Trump vote. Bloomberg himself said something similar this morning. I mean, <clears throat> here's what you have to understand. Go back to 2016. In Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Florida, the states that all basically decide the election, if both Gary Johnson and Jill Stein won a larger share of the vote than the percentage that Hillary lost by. Donald Trump won Michigan by 0.3%, Pennsylvania by 0.7, Wisconsin by 0.7, mm-hmm. Florida by 1.2. Yeah. So it's like you can I mean we can talk about how Howard Schultz has no real constituency in this country for, you know, fiscal conservatism and and social liberalism, right, which would surprise a lot of listeners perhaps because, you know, the constituency for that is on Wall Street, you know, Green maybe rooms. in Silicon Valley, maybe in parts of Los Angeles. The conference Angeles. class, the, right, conference, the conference class. class. Um, but even if he doesn't, even if he only pulls 2%, 3%, 4%, it could be devastating to the Democratic nominee in a close race. Right. There is there is no coalition for him to win, but there is a coalition for him to destroy the country. The, uh, yeah, and just, you know, but let's not even go to, I, like, I think the political argument is good, but so is the policy argument. You, uh, Schultz, you, you're a lifelong Democrat. And I watch your 60 Minutes interview and you're... You asked about tax policy, you say the Democratic position. Immigration, climate, you say the same thing. Healthcare, you say that you think there should be universal health care, but you think the Democratic proposals for things like Medicare for all are too expensive. That's the, that's the primary debate. We're about to have a nationwide state-by-state context in which that contest, in which that is going to be the subject of the debate. You say that the fiscal, uh, that both neither party, neither parties take fiscal responsibility seriously, that, that the $21 trillion uh, national debt is one of the biggest challenges, is the biggest challenge we face. Okay, first of all, I point out that it's under Democratic presidents in which we've actually achieved fiscal responsibility, that there is a fiscally responsible party in this country, and it's the one you belong to. But also, if you believe that that's important, if you believe that Democrats are wrong on that, get in the fight. Get in the fight. You are what you we've said this for a long time. If you believe that your voice is missing in Democratic politics, you can be a Democratic candidate and have your chance to make your case. But somehow you believe that, A, you're the you're the right person to become president. But B, your argument is not persuasive enough to compel the millions of people who will ultimately choose a non-Trump candidate that your argument is correct. And so 
I, I'm just sort of at a loss. And honestly, it's the same kind of egotism and I alone can fix it attitude that led Trump uh, to become Trump. Uh, and you have the money to do it and you can hire the consultants to do it. But uh, you're not actually doing the hard work of putting your skin and time in the game. And the only reason you're in a position to do that is because you have billions of dollars and shame on you. Yeah. I mean, Mike Bloomberg actually ran a city, right? So he has some experience that would lead me to believe that he might be good at becoming president. I'm not endorsing him. I don't want him to run. But again, like just the CEO becoming president is an experiment that hasn't worked. Howard Schultz might be a wonderful man. And by all accounts, he's like kind and nice and has done good things. But you know, his his main position is is that we need to get rid of our debt by slashing entitlement programs to balance the budget. That's not just to the right of Democrats. That's to the right of Donald Trump. He, there's no there's no audience for that policy position. And I also would I would argue that it ignores uh, a lot of what we learned in the last couple of decades about how we should be prioritizing things in this country because the the austerity versus spending debate uh, has kind of played out in the favor of spending more and stimulus and, and, and investing in our country and not slashing taxes for corporations and the wealthiest people, which, by the way, there was a story in, in uh, uh, Reuters today that said that there was barely any capital expenditure for businesses as a result of the tax cut. Almost yeah. none. Yeah, I mean, there's just, there's just there's no substantive reason why Howard Schultz couldn't run as a Democrat, which Not. is unfair because, you know, for all the shit that some people give Bernie Sanders about being an independent and yet running in the Democratic primary – at least Bernie Sanders is running in the Democratic primary and not as an independent, which would fuck everything up. And pulling us all left. Mike Bloomberg, same thing. Mike Bloomberg looked at what it would, what it would be like to run as an independent, realized he could hurt the Democratic candidate's cause and thus help elect Trump. And so Mike Bloomberg said, all right, are you either running as a Democrat or not at all? These two people, Bernie Sanders and Mike Bloomberg, on very different ends of the spectrum are both thinking, yeah, we could both run in the Democratic primary and we'll just see if, if anyone likes our ideas. Howard Schultz thinks that he doesn't have to do that, that he gets to just run on his own as an independent and do it that way, even if it means hurting the Democratic candidate and helping to reelect Trump. And that's, that's just a fucking awful thing to do. And one last thing I'd say, I don't know if Steve Schmidt is currently still advising Schultz or what he's what he's advising them. So I don't want to jump to conclusions yet. But Steve Schmidt, who has been all over MSNBC for the last couple of years talking mm -hmm. about how important it is to defeat Donald Trump. He knows better for sure, even if Howard Schultz doesn't. Yeah. And so whether he's advising him now, whether he advised him in the past, Steve, talk to him. Tell him this is a bad idea. Come, Come on. on, man. Come on. Yeah. And we're we're giving you the benefit of the doubt, please. All right. Because it would be such a shame to find out that your uh, joining of the resistance was an entirely was just a giant ruse for you to go on television and preen and seem moral only to join the one campaign that could help return the presidency to Donald Trump. So much for giving the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> I'm just saying, I, I hope that's not the case. I hope that's not the case. I hope I'm wrong. I, I'm not, I don't even know if I'm right or wrong. But anyway, yeah, that should happen. Okay, when we come back, uh, we'll hear Tommy's interview with CNN's Maeve Reston about Kamala Harris's launch. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts.
Beyonce, Ketanji Brown Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, The Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life. Maybe that's yourself to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show, Hysteria, is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. On the line is Maeve Reston. She's a national political reporter for CNN and a bit of a jet setter at the moment. Yesterday, she was in Oakland for Senator Kamala Harris's presidential announcement. Today, she's in Des Moines, Iowa, preparing for CNN's town hall tonight with Jake Tapper and Senator Harris. Before that, she was in South Carolina with Senator Harris, covering her there. Maeve, thank you so much for doing the show. I hope you are uh, getting airline points. (laughs) I am uh, trying to basically put coffee through an IV drip at this point. Uh, but Kamala's had a very, very busy month, as you know. Yeah. It feels like she launched her campaign, um, you know, basically over a three-week period. A million years ago, yeah. So let's talk about the Oakland rally first. Um, her campaign estimates that there were 20,000 people at the announcement speech yesterday. And from what I saw, there were nearly as many flags displayed behind her at the venue. Uh, it was a great looking shot. It yeah. seemed like a energized crowd. Like, What did you make of the substance of the speech uh, and the size of the turnout and what they think that means for her candidacy? Well, I was really surprised. You know, I traveled with her um, in Iowa last fall, uh, you know, then obviously went to all of her, her book tour events. But I mean, the crowds were really, really impressive uh, yesterday in Oakland. It was interesting because, you know, obviously they filled in that whole space in front of City Hall, uh, but because of the security, they had barricaded off the streets. And you could just see thousands of people going uh, all the way back in the streets, just trying to catch a glimpse of her speech. And, of course, we're talking about Oakland, San Mm -hmm. Francisco, you know, the home of the white liberal progressive. Um, But it was it was a really also racially diverse crowd, uh, tons of young people. And that has been such a strong theme uh, throughout all of her appearances over the last year, how she is drawing these younger voters, voters of color, uh, many of the same voters that Hillary Clinton really struggled with. And so that is clearly, uh, you know, helping her launch and building a lot of momentum for her. But the crowds, yeah, I mean, you never can quite trust crowd counts, no. but, but it was big. Yeah, talk to Sean Spicer about that. 
Um, it, yeah. There was also a ton of policy in the speech. Uh, she talked about Medicare for all, replacing the Trump tax cut with a middle class tax cut of up to $500 a month, uh, universal pre-K, debt-free college. This is definitely you know another very strong progressive platform. But did anything you heard or did not hear surprise you on the policy front? Well, you know, she has been talking a lot about each of those those policies, uh, particularly her her tax credit for middle class Americans over uh, you know the last few months. But uh, it's been really interesting the way in which she has taken on Donald Trump. And I thought yesterday, even though she didn't mention his name, she did that a little bit more <laughs> aggressively. Mm-hmm. Um, talking about uh, certainly his immigration policies, but also talking about um, how, you know, you've got foreign powers that are basically like a malware in the White House. And so that was a pretty direct hit on Trump and his, uh, you know, alleged relationship with the Russians. Um, She clearly is, is hitting all of those high points that she knows that she needs to hit with progressive voters as she competes with the likes of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, uh, but definitely trying to make a stronger push here initially to connect with voters, you know, about their economic struggles and what they're worried about, uh, those kitchen table issues. Uh, And then, of course, always hitting a lot of those high points on criminal justice reform, which is the most controversial part of her record. Mm -hmm. So let's dig into that. I mean, she was a prosecutor. Uh, There was a lot of bio as part of the speech, she talked about being the child of immigrants growing up in Oakland, uh, her work as a prosecutor. You know, the, the campaign slogan is Kamala Harris uh, for the people. And, and I think that sounds like, you know, language you could probably hear from almost any candidate. Right. But what I think makes it unique to her is that apparently it's something she would say when she walked into the courtroom. Um, do you right. think it's, it was that first? It was actually uh, blocks from where she made her announcement, where she said those words for the first time in the Alameda County Courthouse, Kamala Harris for the people, which is what every prosecutor says, uh, you know, when they walk into the courtroom. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess, like, telling that story and making a, I think, sort of standard issue campaign slogan feel like it's real and meaningful based on your bio, I think is the challenge of any election. I mean, do you think that she made progress toward that goal yesterday? I think so. I mean, I think that this is just going to be a continual uh, issue that pops up for her, because if you look at the length of her record, uh, you know, both as a line level prosecutor, uh, prosecuting crimes from sexual assault, you know, all the way to homicide, then as DA of San Francisco and as attorney general, there are so many cases that she oversaw and has responsibility for over those years, uh, that I think it's a record that's hard even for her own people to get their their arms around. Uh, But she has tried to cast it over and over again as this difficult decision that she made uh, to become a prosecutor, to try to change the system from the inside, uh, knowing that that was going to be something that surprised even people in her family. Mm -hmm. Uh, She did get heckled uh, by one protester, during her speech yesterday about one specific case uh, where an undocumented immigrant, um, you know, allegedly uh, killed someone. And she, it was uh, something that she didn't quite address in the moment, uh, but something where you could see any number of these cases coming up over and over again as she tries to explain her record. And the fact that she, you know, sometimes wasn't making these decisions directly with prosecutors below her, and she would sometimes learn about these controversial cases in the press. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, I noticed when Senator Warren uh, made her announcement, President Trump immediately took to Twitter to attack her in the most racist way he can find. Uh, <laughs> yesterday, he attacked Howard Schultz, the Starbucks guy, and we can talk about that in a bit later. I, I yeah. didn't see any tweets responding to Senator Harris. D- did you notice that as well? It- it's- has he been reticent to attack her, or what do you think? He has. Deal? You know, we were going back through uh, his Twitter feed to see if he's really ever really attacked her. And I think that she is kind of a conundrum um, for him, maybe in the same way that, you know, Nancy Pelosi is, in the sense that he hasn't been able to come up with a nickname for her. Um, But, I mean, this is someone who is is trying to convince Democratic voters that, you know, after going through this series of firsts in her career, going up against the big banks as attorney general, that she's someone that is not going to be bullied by President Trump. Uh, And she's going to have to prove that over and over again. But he has yet to engage her. And you have to wonder Mm -hmm. whether that's just because he doesn't you know, think he has quite the right strategy to do that yet. Yeah. Maybe women from the Bay Area are his kryptonite. That's yes, what we're learning. There you go. That's the story. <laughs> uh, that is certainly the Harris for president campaign story. Um, so Senator Harris, you talked about this before. She went to South Carolina before her announcement on Sunday. You were there as well. Can you talk about that event and what made it unique? Well, so this was was so interesting because um, a huge part of, of Senator Harris's background is obviously the fact that she went to Howard University. Uh, it was a place, she said, where you could come as you were uh, and be exactly who you wanted to be, that you, you wouldn't be put in anyone's box. And a big part of that for her was pledging the Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated, their official name, uh, this powerful uh, sorority of, um, of black women who are in many leadership positions all over the country. And this event in South Carolina uh, on Friday night was maybe my favorite thing that I have been to in many years. Uh, It was this incredibly elegant gala called the Pink Ice Gala, Mm -hmm. where all of these sorority sisters came, you know, in their finest gowns uh, to hear her speak, to listen to her. She said that she was there, you know, just as a sorority sister. She didn't actually mention uh, her presidential bid in her speech. But this is a kind of hidden network that she has uh, of black women who obviously could be the, the, the key to the Democratic nomination, as they have been so many times over and over again. And in a state like, like uh, South Carolina, to have, you know, that flashy rollout in front of these women who are so excited about her bid, I think was a really strong way to launch in the state that she really hopes will be her springboard uh, to all of those states throughout the Southeast, as well as Nevada and California. I mean, what you're describing to me in terms of the South Carolina event, the crowd in Oakland, sounds like the recipe for winning the Democratic nomination. And to the point where you're seeing uh, the L.A. Times, uh, people you know well, like Mark Baraback and others, wondering aloud if she's the front runner. Like, I know those terms are utterly meaningless this far out, <laughs> but is that something that worries them or that they embrace? Like, how are they dealing with the success so far? 
Well, I think that they have been really happy with the rollout so far in the sense that she really was able to to try to define herself at the beginning as she wants to define herself. And obviously that is so important. I mean, you look at the way that Elizabeth Warren got totally tripped up Mm -hmm. with uh, by engaging Donald Trump on, you know, her ancestry. And uh, at the same time, I think they're very cognizant of the fact that there will be many front runners in this race, as we have seen so many times, uh, you know, if we're thinking back to, to 2007 at this time, I don't even know who would have been the front runner at that point. Not Obama. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but it's just, uh, you know, I think they're, they're kind of buckled up, ready for the ride, uh, and know that there are going to be a, a lot of ups and downs throughout this year, especially with so many candidates in the field and, you know, potentially dealing with an independent candidacy in Howard Schultz, which is the Democrats' worst nightmare. Ugh, that guy. Um, before we get to him. So you're in Iowa right now. There's a town hall tonight with Senator Harris and Jake Tapper. Is it at 10 p.m.? Yeah, 10 p.m. Eastern, uh, 7 p.m. on the West Coast. And uh, it'll be really interesting. A lot of people just coming with questions, whatever they want to to ask. And Jake will be moderating. So I think it'll be really interesting to see her in that setting. One thing that I've noticed about her um, particularly in Iowa on this last visit, was that she's incredibly good uh, one-on-one on the rope line, like mm-hmm. blows Hillary Clinton away in that sense, just engaging voters one-on-one. And she has this very unique connection, particularly with women, after her questioning of Brett Kavanaugh during mm-hmm. the uh, Supreme Court hearings last year, uh, where women would come up to her crying in Iowa during her last visit saying, you spoke for me, like I am a victim of sexual assault. It was really a remarkable thing to see. Um, Then you've seen her on the stump where she kind of gets huge cheers when she comes out, but sometimes her stump speeches kind of fall flat. I think that's a challenge for her, like sort of sustaining the energy in the room. So I think it's going to be really exciting tonight to see her in this setting uh, where, you know, she is able to engage one-on-one, but is going to get some really tough questions from the voters of Iowa who like to kick the tires on all of these candidates. So is this basically Jake moderating questions from voters, or is he going to get to throw a few fastballs himself? I am sure that he will slip a few <laughs> fastballs in there, as he always does. Yeah, I hear um, but, uh, but it is, you know, kind of a free-flowing conversation. So we'll see where it goes. So a little bit of a processy question for you. Like, back to your point about one-on-one on the rope line and the key to personal retail politics. Um, I am like an Iowa obsessive weirdo. And when I first heard that she was doing this event, I wondered, is that the best idea? Because for all the the Iowa reporters, you know, are human beings who want the first crack at the candidates when they come to town and they might get pissed off. And then you have to deal with Jake, who is like a notoriously tough interview. Am I wrong about this? Or does this speak to a, a different treatment of Iowa than, say, other early states? Well, I mean, I think, you know, there, there, there has been, I guess, a little bit of grumbling that she's not, you know, starting in somebody's living room. But mm-hmm. you do have to remember that, that she did come and do that seven-stop tour last fall, where she did a lot of that. You know, right. she did the kind of small brick tavern conversations with voters. Um, so, I don't know, I guess a little bit of a risky strategy. But if you're looking to get your message out in a, in a big way uh, right off the bat, and especially when you have much lower names, ID than, let's say, Bernie Sanders or even Elizabeth Warren, um, I think that they felt like this was enough of a balance where she could come in, uh, talk to voters, but also kind of address the rest of the country at the same time. Hmm. Um, 
So when you talk to the campaign, like what do they view as her keys to winning and what kind of things do you sense that they're worried about at this stage? Well, I think, uh, you know, as we talked about before, certainly uh, her record on criminal justice, they just know that that is going to be something that that comes up over and over again. And it's hard to get ahead of that sometimes. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I think they were caught off guard by the op-ed in the New York Times that was very critical, saying that she had not been progressive enough as a prosecutor and pushing reforms as attorney general uh, in California, you know, for example, to reform the three strikes law, uh, even though she had advocated for that in the past. But um, at the same time, I think that, you know, they see these early months as just really important in terms of her connecting with people on the ground, um, having those one-on-one conversations. And then in terms of their path to victory, uh, you know, they, they actually lay it out better than a lot of campaigns that I've heard, where they hope that she has a strong finish in Iowa and New Hampshire, you know, enough of a strong finish to have some momentum going into South Carolina then really try to uh, galvanize that black vote and consolidate it, which will be a challenge, of course, if she's got Cory Booker and Joe Biden in the race. Uh, but then use South Carolina as that launch pad into all of those states in the southeast mm-hmm. that are, um, you know, many of them have huge proportions um, of the electorate is dominated by the black vote. And so they see a chance for her to do really well in a series of those early state primaries. Um, and then, of course, you have California moving up its primary to uh, to Super Tuesday. So actually, ballots will be going out in California on the same day that Iowa voters go to caucus. That's uh, so she's going to make a huge play there, uh, which is not going to be an easy win, by the way. Uh, and also in Nevada, where she hopes that her advocacy on immigration reform and for the dreamers will really help her notch a win there out west as well. God, I miss just the hilarious uh, hedging of early state success. My favorite ever was Joe Lieberman in 2004 claiming that he was in a three-way split decision for third place in New Hampshire. (laughs) Shockingly, that didn't really fly with the uh, National Press Corps. But yeah, do well in Iowa. But like, you know, no one ever says what that means. I was literally not allowed to say we need to win Iowa because God help yeah, us. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, and, and, you know, so many people are saying, so many of the sources that I'm talking to here on the ground in Iowa are saying, we have no no idea how many tickets are coming out of Iowa this time. Because if you've got like 15 people in the field, you know, it's it's a little hard to to measure success in that. So this could be a fight that really drags out for a while. Um, and I think that's to the benefit of the country rather than having it decided way up front. Yeah, I totally agree. I also think that the the number of people in this primary means that anyone who thinks that they can predict what will happen is bonkers. Um, oh, totally foolish. Yeah. Uh, last question for you. Howard Schultz charges me a lot for coffees, uh, commoditized the experience. <laughs> what, what, what the hell is he up to? Uh, what, I know what you're is he buying doing? like CDs at Starbucks, right? Uh, Come just, on. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> I, I buy the Adele thing that's been on sale for like six years. So I have been talking to folks who are close to him for quite some time now as they have been very seriously investigating this idea of an independent run for him. He just feels as though, you know, that the Democratic Party obviously has gone too far to the left and these ideas like Medicare for all are too expensive. Uh, But I mean, I think the blowback that he's seen over the last two days has just been 
pretty brutal. Mm-hmm. Um, and while it's true that, you know, by the numbers, there are a ton of independents out there in the country, as we all know, they generally tend to really be Democrats or Republicans or lean one way or the other. Um, So, I mean, I'm not surprised that he jumped in, but I think that he's going to be under so much pressure, including from another billionaire, uh, Michael Bloomberg, who put out a statement today saying that he didn't think an independent run was a good idea. Uh, So many people that I just have chills thinking back to, you know, Ralph Nader and the other spoilers of the past. I mean, these states are decided by such a small margin of voters, and you can see him having potentially a really strong constituency. And I don't see how, uh, you know, how Democrats could do well in that scenario. I mean, it, it basically is, it makes It will make Donald Trump's play for his base look like the most brilliant thing that we've ever seen if we end up in this three-way race. God, that is exactly right. I mean, Howard Wolfson, who is a longtime strategist for Hillary Clinton, and then more recently from Mike Bloomberg, tweeted that he's seen enough data over many years to know that anyone running for president as an independent will split the anti-incumbent, anti-Trump vote. Therefore, this could be the thing that delivers the presidency back to Donald Trump at a time when his disapproval rating is 58 percent. And at a time when I I think it was ABC Washington Post poll said 57 percent of voters said they would not vote for him. Like this guy is going to fuck up the closest (laughs) thing we have to getting this guy out of office. It'll be interesting to see if he is you know, listening to all of these voices, like if he really is in still in decision mode, uh, because you'd have to think that there's a chance here that that Howard Schultz becomes, you know, the villain for everyone in the Democratic Party going forward if he if he goes ahead with this. Oh, we Democrats love to blame uh, external (laughs) forces for our own failure to win elections. So, yeah, people will like boycott Starbucks locations. I guarantee you the the we will take this so far over the top that he will not even be able to understand what happened to him. It's going to be wild. That's a great story. I'm going to write that. <laughs> yeah, that is a good story. <laughs> Democrats are going to lose their fucking minds. I mean, you're already seeing it on Twitter. I hate the stupid I'm here for the ratio cult, you know, culture on Twitter where someone posts something and it's a question right. of how many replies versus retweets you get. But in this instance, like, <laughs> there's, there is no uh, national movement for Mr. Schultz to uh, run. I do think that we're just going to have to see how this goes for him. Uh, You know, obviously the biggest issue is going to be ballot access. He says he's got that all locked down. You know what a Byzantine Mm -hmm. system it is getting on the ballot in all 50 states and counties. Uh, So we'll see whether he can withstand the backlash and whether he really thinks it's it's worth it to put his his reputation on the line or if he thinks that there's enough independents out there who are ready for something totally different than these two parties that have so much dysfunction. <sighs> yeah, too much listening to David Gergen, not enough listening to like voters in states, I think might be the problem here. But you are exactly <laughs> right. It is not an easy task to get on all those ballots. Um, Maeve, thank you so much for doing the show. Thanks for all your travel to actually cover these events. It is invaluable for us to hear from journalists like you who are doing the work. So I really, really appreciate it. Oh, it's so much fun to be with you. And I hope we'll, uh, we'll do it a lot over all right. the next two years. Yes. See you soon. Thanks to Maeve Reston for joining us today. And, uh, you know, we'll talk to you guys on Thursday. Oh, God. John, I forgot to say, this episode of Pod Save America is brought to you by Starbucks. Oh, shit. We are so... (laughs) 
Uh, it is kind of funny though that like <laughs> Morning Joe, the, the place that probably convinced him to do this, has had <laughs> Starbucks cups on their desks for the better part of a decade. I like Starbucks. Uh, I do like too. I love Starbucks. Morning Joe to okay. Aspen to Davos. Yeah. It's uh, <laughs> a. That's why you get this view of politics. The nodding heads of the both parties are broken. Why won't they just be pro gay and cut the fucking Social Security? <laughs> Isn't that what America's clamoring for? Smaller Social Security checks? It is not. Tune in next week where we talk about the impending uh, invasion of Venezuela. Oh, God. Oh God. Bye, everyone. Bye. <laughs>